Good morning, church. It is a joy and an honor to be with you, to continue serving with you all. Um, it's been a great experience, and I'm privileged to bring God's word to you again today. So thank you. And to start off today, I want to ask you a question. I'm sure you've talked about it over breakfast and every day this week. Actually, it's probably not one you thought I would ask you today. But here it is. What do you want inscribed on your tombstone? Wow, that's going to be a great sermon, isn't it? If you were happy, I just made you sad. If you were sad, well, I'm sorry, I made it worse. But seriously, on a serious note, how do you want to be remembered? Or maybe even more telling, how would others remember you? Here are some examples of tombstone inscriptions. Robert Clay Allison apparently was one of the most accomplished gunslingers in the Old West, and his tombstone reads, quote, he never killed a man that did not need killing, end quote. <laughs> or another gunslinger, here lies Byron Vickers, second fastest draw in New Austin. Frank Sinatra's tombstone reads, the best is yet to come. Or Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. Maybe you would pick a humorous statement. Maybe others would pick that for you. Or maybe a more sobering one. But at the end of the day, at the end of our journey on earth, would it be true to say that you were steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord? As a follower of Jesus, this should be your ambition. This should be my ambition, and not just for a future inscription, but for today, for now. As Hamilton Baptist Church, this ought to be our ambition. Some churches have, are known for, they've got a nice building, right? Which we do. Or they've got a great kids program. We have lots of kids programs. They have great music. We do. Or they have a really cool pastor. We do. We do. <laughs> Josh is pretty awesome. <laughs> you can tell he's rubbing off on me. But... Maybe you know someone who is not a Christian, or maybe that even describes you today, or maybe you're a Christian, but you're struggling today. Maybe you feel as if living for Jesus is, is a life lived in vain, right? Why should we labor for King Jesus? Are we certain if I do this that I'm not living my life in vain? If I'm going to give my life to a cause, I want to know it's worth it. I don't want to give my time, my resources, my life to a myth or something that's like a mist in the morning and then a few hours, it's gone. Are you looking for meaning, for purpose, and you don't want death to have the final say? Let me call your attention to the last section of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 today. And our passage today gives us the hope and confidence we need in order to be steadfast immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord. And it assures us, it guarantees us that living for Jesus is not a life lived in vain. 
So if you would, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we are going to read verses 50 through 58. If you'd like to follow along in the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 962. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50. This is God's word. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Father, I ask that our words, my words, would glorify you today. You are our strength and our redeemer. Would you change us through your word and through the power of your spirit to look more like Jesus even today? We ask this in his name. Amen. So this is the last section in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And here's what I want us to see today. Here's what I think the Apostle Paul is getting at. And it's this. The guaranteed final victory over sin and death propels us to labor on for King Jesus. The guaranteed final victory over sin and death propels us to labor on for King Jesus. But first of all, we have to look at something. And point number one is this. Brothers and sisters, we have a problem. Houston, we have a problem. Hamilton, we have a problem. Everybody in the human race, we have a problem. We have a great need. In this massive chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, if you're not familiar with the Bible or familiar with this passage... It's all about the resurrection. Paul just finished explaining the pattern of our future resurrection. That is, those in Jesus will actually be resurrected just like Jesus. If Jesus was resurrected with a new physical body, then those who are united to him will also be resurrected in the same way. This is what the Apostle Paul just finished saying in verse 49. He said, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust... We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. 
So he talks about the pattern of the believer's future resurrection. And then he moves on here to verse 50 to show the absolute necessity of a future resurrection. Why is this needed, Paul? Well, he tells us there remains a problem. And the problem is this. Our corruptible bodies cannot enter the incorruptible kingdom of God. Our present condition will not allow us into the eternal presence of an undefiled, holy God. Our bodies are not ready for eternity. Now, I think it's important to know what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying that we will not have physical bodies. He's just finished explaining that our future resurrected bodies will be patterned after Jesus. And if you remember, after Jesus got up from the dead, he had a transformed body, but it was still a physical body. It wasn't a spirit floating around. He ate with the apostles. And it was a common notion in the Apostle Paul's days in Roman society to downplay the physical world. In fact, the physical order wasn't even that important. The only thing important was one's soul. And so whenever you die, what happens? Well, you're, you're free from the prison of this material body. You can be free. Of course, the Apostle Paul strongly disagrees. And I think this, this cautions us today. You can say, Paul, what's the big deal? They were believing in Jesus. They just had some future things messed up about the resurrected bodies. Why does Paul disagree? Why is this such an important issue? Because this false notion of spirituality actually undermined the gospel message itself. Why do I have to believe that I will rise too if I follow Jesus? Because without Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection, redemption is incomplete. Salvation is incomplete. If our bodies don't experience resurrection, our greatest enemy, which Paul says is death, still wins. That's the problem. If our bodies just decompose and there's no future resurrection, death still wins. And maybe today you're thinking, there's a lot of spirituality going on in our world. And it's, it's not a bad thing. But we have to be careful that we do not let the ideas of the world, the ideas of our culture kind of creep into Christianity and make it something that the gospel is not. For example, I think we talk a lot about karma as if it's true. Karma is not a Christian concept. The Bible presents the God who is sovereign in control of all things. Nothing is left up to chance. Or we don't go out in the woods and seek mindless meditation. Rather, God calls us to look to his word to find what's real and true in life. Spirituality is not the gospel. So just as this was infiltrating the church in Corinth, we must caution ourselves against this today. And I think this, there's a lot of going on about spiritual bodies and future resurrection. And I think a belief about uh, an understanding of how Paul views history will be helpful for us. How does he view the unfolding of history or the end times? So if you would in your mind, or maybe you have a piece of paper, you can, it's quite simple. You can draw a horizontal line like this. And then you can draw a line down the middle like that. It's a vertical line. And you've got it. You've got Paul's idea of the end times figured out. Call the publishers, let them know you've got it figured out. Certainly there are more details we could add, but fundamentally, 
Paul taught in Ephesians chapter 1 that there is this age and there is a new age to come. This age he described as this present evil age. This one to come is filled with righteousness. But when Jesus stepped foot on this earth, something glorious happened. The new age of God's glorious kingdom actually invaded this present evil age. God's promise of salvation has stepped into this age. The cross and resurrection of Jesus was the dawn of the new age. It has begun. Do you remember reading in your history books about someone discovering a new land, sailing across the ocean? What do they do when they get there? Well, they take their flag from the country that they're representing, and they stamp it in the ground. Is the land necessarily all theirs yet? Have they defeated everybody yet? No. But what is he saying? He's saying, this is mine and my country's, and I'm willing to fight anybody who opposes this. And that's what Jesus did when he came through the cross and resurrection, except His flags don't look like flags. They look like you and you and you and me. Christians, Paul said, that those in Christ are actually new creation in this present evil age. We have actually been set free from the power of this present evil age in Galatians chapter 1. And the present form of this world is passing away. But for now, Christians live, if you will, in this type of twilight zone. That is, we've experienced the saving power of the age to come, but we still live in the present evil age. Jesus reigns today, but the destruction of all his enemies has not yet occurred. We are still waiting for our full redemption along with creation, who in Romans chapter 8 is still groaning. But here is the good news. We have a problem. Our bodies aren't ready. Corruption can't get into the eternal bliss of God's kingdom. But there's good news. And it moves us on to our second point. That our guaranteed victory over sin and death. We have a guaranteed victory over sin and death. Look at verse 51. He says, behold, I tell you a mystery. Now for Paul... Mystery isn't like we think of it today like a riddle or something we've got to figure out. For Paul and the writers of the Bible, a mystery is something that was once hidden but is now made known to us. It's quite simple. God knew it. We didn't know it. So somebody made it known to us. This is also explained in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But here's the mystery. Here's what's now made known. Those who have died in Christ and those in Christ who are still living will be transformed, will be changed. How will this happen? When will this take place? You can imagine all the questions that flooded their minds and still flood our minds today. And Paul says, in an instant, in a moment, at the end when the trumpet sounds, we really don't know as much about these details as we might like to know or as some other people claim to know. It's not super clear even what the last trumpet is. But what is clear is that it signals the end. And this is the trumpet that will literally wake the dead. In the Old Testament, we see all kinds of uses for trumpets. 
Trumpets were used to blast the last battle cry, like a victory. They were used to talk about the approaching day of judgment from God. They were used to talk about the coming of the Lord. They were used to talk about a day when God would gather his people from the four corners of the earth in Isaiah chapter 27. But I wonder if Exodus 19 isn't in the Apostle Paul's mind. And Exodus 19 is when Israel, wandering in the wilderness, came to Mount Sinai right before they received the Ten Commandments. Actually, Israel was about to meet God. And Exodus 19, verse 16 says this. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. The trumpet signaled it was time to meet God. But the people of Israel weren't excited about this event. They were terrified. They trembled. They literally shook. There are a lot of specifics we may want to know from our passage today. But what we know is that our problem of corruption will be changed instantaneously. Notice this transformation that's happening. It isn't a process. It's the fastest moment we can think of, like the blink of an eye, like the twinkle of an eye, like the flash of light in a moment. It will happen. We will be changed. We will meet God. But those in Christ, it's not like the Israelites. It won't be terrifying because we will be prepared to meet God. So I say this. I remember as a kid, and maybe you're in here today and you think about the second coming of Jesus and you hear all sorts of things or maybe watched a lot of movies. I say this because as a kid, I was terrified of the coming of Jesus. Maybe because of all the films that were out there. I don't know. But can I just say, if you are a Christian, the second coming of Jesus is not terrifying. The second coming of Jesus is glorious. It's life. Don't be afraid of the coming of King Jesus if your faith is in him. Why? Because in a moment, whether dead or alive, we will be transformed into the glorious, imperishable, immortal image of Jesus himself. That's what Philippians tells us. We will be like Jesus. We will have a new, physical, resurrected body. 1 John chapter 3 says... Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he does appear, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. In Christ, our perishable and immortal bodies. Notice what verse 43 says. It says, this perishable body must Put on the imperishable. It must happen. It's guaranteed to happen. Why does this have to happen? Why does Paul not just say this will happen, but this must happen? 
Well, he's going back to what he was describing when Jesus entered the world. Because Jesus got up from the dead, because Jesus defeated death, everyone who's united to him by faith will also get up from the dead and have resurrected bodies. The stone has been thrown, if you will. It's like a chemical reaction that can't be reversed. Once it's mixed, there's nothing you can do to get it back. And Jesus got up from the dead, so there's nothing you could do to stop Christians from future resurrection. It's going to happen. Because Jesus got up, this must happen. And when this happens, this explanation of mystery turns into victory. This type of victory song. Now, our greatest enemy in life is not Monday morning, right? Or losing that client, or not getting that promotion. Our greatest enemy isn't even a Democrat or a Republican. Our greatest enemy, Paul says back in verse 26, is death. And think about this. Our greatest enemy, our greatest foe, our greatest adversary is death. There's nothing as morbid as death. You can be having a great day. You can be enjoying time with your family. But if you're driving down the road and you get stuck in traffic and and you get closer and you see it's an accident, and maybe you don't see all the details, but it becomes pretty apparent and pretty clear that something tragic has happened, you, you don't even know that person. You don't even know anybody related to that person. But just knowing that can destroy your day. It can turn a happy scene in the car to a sober scene. There's nothing quite like death. Death is not the next step of life, right? It's not natural. Death is not our friend, Death is unnatural and wrong. And we go back and we read the book of Genesis. We see that death is actually an intrusion. It's an intruder on God's good creation. So there's, there's many today who want to undermine death. Or we like to do a really good job of, of putting makeup on death. We like to stand way back from death. But no matter what, there's just nothing as morbid as death, it's the end. We don't have any power over it. There's nothing we can do. And it just gets even worse if you think about it because down in verse 56, he says, the sting of death is sin. What does that mean? The sting of death is sin. It means that death is awful because of sin. Death results in eternal damnation, eternal separation from God, and eternal judgment because of sin. If you meet God at death, still in your sin, you will be terrified just like the Israelites were at Mount Sinai. Like the fang of a snake or the sting of a bee, death and sin create a potent injection to the soul. And then he goes on to say that the power of sin is the law. And we ask again, what does that mean, Paul? Well, we know he's not, what he's not saying is the law is sinful. 
in another letter in the book of Romans chapter 7, he says the law is good. It's not sinful. So what does he mean? Well, he seems to be saying that the law tells us what to do and declares us cursed if we fail, right? Which we all have. In this way, the law strengthens the power of sin. The law, which is good, in a way functions as the agent of sin because it it either leads us to think we've accomplished this, we've done this, a sense of pride in our own works, or it reveals the depths of our inadequacy to please God, to live up to God's standards, our rebellion against God. Either way, the law becomes death-dealing instead of life-giving. Death. Last time I checked, Harvard came out with a study after years of checking, and they said that 10 out of 10 people actually will face this. I haven't checked today, but I think, I think that's still true. Right? Young or old, you can ignore it. It will catch you. You can avoid it longer than others, but in the end, your diet won't save you. You can embrace some encouraging quotes, but Gandhi or Buddha or Hallmark won't save you. So seriously, what's your plan for death? You know it's coming. You know it's there. It's all around us. What's your plan? Well, for death, the Apostle Paul is saying, you can come to the one who fulfilled the demands of the law. You can come to the one who took our curse of sin upon himself in the cross, He died, but three days later, his body was resurrected, and he now holds the keys of death. Some people call him a prophet. Some people call him a good teacher. Some people call him a great example to follow. But his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. He also goes by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And if you're looking for a nickname, he goes by the resurrection and the life. The imperishable actually became perishable. The immortal actually took on mortal flesh. Sin is the sting of death, but Jesus took upon himself our curse of sin. The power of sin is found through the law, but Jesus satisfies the demands of the law for us. No wonder Paul cries out in verse 57, thanks be to God who gives us victory through Jesus Christ. What else can you say? Victory in Jesus, our greatest enemy. All that is there, the morbid scene of death, no hope. Jesus stands on the other side saying, I've beat death. And if you come to me, if you put your trust in me, you can beat death too. If you need to beat somebody who's bigger and stronger than you, you need a bigger and stronger friend, right? Back in junior high, I loved to instigate things. That's what I took joy in doing. And so whenever I would go to like a church camp, let's say, my, my goal was to always find a friend, a big friend who could protect me from all of the things that instigated me. Because if I had a friend who was bigger than everybody else, I wasn't afraid to instigate. I wasn't afraid to taunt. I wasn't afraid. And what Paul is saying is that you need someone bigger and greater than death. 
And he says his name is Jesus. Come to him. You may not have time to wait. And notice what he says. He says, he won the battle for you. Verse 57, he gives us the victory. It just keeps... So we know that we can defeat death if we're in Jesus, but also he gives us victory. This is the message of grace. The battle, the war has been won. You don't have to fight death. Jesus has fought death for you, and he offers it. He says, I will give it to you. Death has been defanged. The poisonous venom snake of death has been defanged. It can't harm you anymore. And then he gives this beautiful picture of it's been swallowed up. Death is swallowed up in victory. Jesus can taunt death. Those who are in Jesus can taunt death. We can say, death, where is your victory? Where's your trophy? Where's your sting? I know somebody who defeated you, and I am putting my trust in him. And I know that even one day when they lay my body in the ground, it's going to get back up. Or one day I won't even experience that because Jesus is going back and he's going to transform me. Death still hurts, right? Let's not pretend it doesn't. After all, Jesus himself even wept at the funeral of a friend. But here's what's important to get. Those who are trusting in Jesus, death is ultimately not lethal. This really is is death's funeral, right? What Paul is describing is the funeral for death. And you're invited. And the beautiful thing about this funeral is that in the end, it actually turns into a wedding. As we read in Isaiah chapter 25, there will be a great feast. There will be good wine. Death will be swallowed up. All the tears that death brought will be wiped away. There will be no more reproach on God's people. We've waited for this. The people have been waiting since Isaiah. Then Jesus comes and it's finally here. But we're still waiting for the final consummation of this. So we can rejoice. Death, be not proud. Though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. Here's what John Doan said. One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. Maybe you're not a Christian today again. Maybe the message you embrace or you know somebody like this is just be you. After all, we all find our way to God, so they say. To say you have the way is narrow, right? I I get that. But think about it. We, we don't say the way is narrow for anything else. If you're drowning and there's one flotation device, we, we don't complain that there's a, only one flotation device. We, we grab it, right? If the building is on fire and there's only one escape, we don't call somebody intolerant for showing us the only way out. And so please understand, this is, this is Christianity, Maybe you are a Christian. This is what we're representing to people. We're not saying that we have the knowledge above everybody else, but we are certain of a few things. 
And we're certain that we follow Jesus who died for sinners just like you and just like me. And he guarantees our salvation and says that there's no one else under heaven who can save you. So if you're not a Christian or you're Christian, you're struggling, why not accept this today? You were made for God and you will not find rest until you come to Jesus. And he offers you victory. He gives it freely. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work. For a Christian, maybe you still fear the sting of death. Maybe you haven't prayed like you ought or read the Bible like you should. Brother or sister, if this describes you, look to Jesus who gives you victory. You didn't earn it. Don't think that You have to read your Bible and pray so that God loves you. Rather, read your Bible and pray because God loved you. He gives victory, and it's guaranteed. Our greatest problem of sin and death, the victory is guaranteed in King Jesus. So what do we do with all of this? Well, the Apostle Paul seems to be saying, labor on, right? If you look at the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 15, and I would encourage you maybe later today after lunch or you're, you're hanging out with uh, a roommate or family, why not read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and just see how the Apostle Paul starts building this, this historical case for the resurrection and shows why it's important and the beauty of it? Why not read that today and be encouraged by that? But he spends all of this time talking about the resurrection. It's like this much. And then he gives us a little little thing to do. And, And notice our passage, despite some details, does not tell us when this will happen. In fact, when the Bible speaks about the second coming, it does not do so in order to just appease our curiosity. Or so that we can figure out all the charts and write a bestseller. Any mention of the last things is always to motivate you and I today. When he talks about the future, it's so that the church takes action today. So just a word of caution for you and for I. If, if we get excited about these last things, about the defeat of death and, and the final reign of King Jesus, but it doesn't change how we're living today, we've missed the points. We've gained a bunch of knowledge that can puff us up. But if it doesn't lead us to looking more like Jesus, we've we've missed the point. May it never be said that Hamilton Baptist Church knew Scripture better than anybody but failed to put them into practice. The sun is rising after a long night at sea. We can see the dawn because of what Jesus has done for us. We can see the sun The church, our church here, is built on the resurrection of Jesus. Everything we do relies on the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus' body is still somewhere in the Middle East, rotting and decaying in an empty tomb, then what we are doing is in vain. Earlier in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said that if Jesus didn't rise, then his preaching was in vain. Our faith is in vain, and we ought to go back live like the pagans, for tomorrow we will die. But friends, Christians and non-Christians, what if Jesus' body is not in a tomb decomposing? Think about the implications of that. 
Jesus has risen. Death has been defanged. Therefore, none of our work, the Apostle Paul says, is in vain. So you're wondering, if I keep believing and trusting in Jesus and give my life to this, am I wasting my life? The Apostle Paul says, no. So how does this future, how does it feed your faith? Are you, are you prepared to be steadfast? Will you keep trusting in Jesus when difficulty comes, when the doctor gives you the news, or your children abandon you? Or will you stop trusting? Brothers and sisters, you have a guaranteed victory in King Jesus. Trusting in him is not in vain. Are you prepared to be immovable, like the tree planted in Psalm chapter 1? Or are you being tossed around and beaten up by sin and its deceitfulness? Brothers and sisters, you have a guaranteed victory in King Jesus. Living for him is not in vain. Your gospel ministry is not in vain. Sharing the good news of Jesus with your friends and your neighbors or that one coworker you don't like, and if you tell him about Jesus, he'll probably never talk to you again. It's not in vain. Serving in the nursery and changing another diaper so that you can take care of your children and raise them to know King Jesus. Another tireless night. Reading them another story. It's not in vain. Teaching five-year-olds the Bible every week or volunteering to teach Sunday school, which may seem like you're doing the same, week, same thing week in and week out. The Apostle Paul says, because Jesus got up from the dead, it's not in vain. Sacrificing your paycheck when you could take another vacation to help fund a church plant or, or build an orphanage or send the gospel somewhere where it's never been, the Apostle Paul says, it's not in vain. You wake up Sunday morning and you'd rather go back to sleep, but instead you wake up and, and you try to make the kids look presentable and yourself, and you come out to worship together with a bunch of other people who believe the same thing as you do, the Apostle Paul says, that is not in vain. Are you surrounding yourself with friends who will encourage you in this great hope? Make them your best friends. And the beautiful thing about laboring on for King Jesus is it's fueled by what Jesus has already done for us, right? But even better, we don't labor alone. We labor on together as a church. This gathering of Hamilton Baptist Church, we are laboring together. Maybe you're involved in growing and praise God, keep going. It's not in vain. But maybe you just show up Sunday mornings and get out of here as fast as you can. I challenge you, stay around. Build relationships, talk to friends who will encourage you and you can encourage them in the gospel. Join a community group, go to a men's event, go to a woman's event. We've got lots of opportunities so that we can labor on together for King Jesus. And we need each other. Our labor is not in vain. We don't labor alone. 1 Corinthians 15 intends to change your life today. Our guaranteed final victory over sin and death propels us to labor on for King Jesus.
victory is in Christ. And if we are in Jesus, that victory is guaranteed for us as well. Can we pray? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have sent your son Jesus to take our place, to to take the sting of death on our behalf. And if we trust in you, we will be resurrected, united in you. Please let this change us. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.